The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. Maybe you could tell, hopefully you could tell from the guided meditation that we've been more formally looking at this particular attitude, one of the four divine abodes of the Buddha, taught both as a practice but also as an expression of the fruits of practice. He taught about these four emotional or attitudinal qualities of mind, the four divine abodes, that basic goodness or friendliness of the heart, metta, compassion, which is karuna in Pali, mudita, which we were reflecting on today at the end of the sit especially, which is appreciative joy, empathetic joy, gladness sometimes it's translated as. And then equanimity is the fourth of these beautiful emotions or attitudes. And it's really a powerful complement to awareness practice. In a way, I think it's fair to say we can't really be present with our experience unless our heart or mind knows a lot, is very familiar with these beautiful emotions. Because it's very easy with the idea of being mindful for there to be a little aversion, like I'm using mindfulness to suppress, to control the experience. I I remember my wife in the early years, you know, and I'd sort of, we'd be having a conversation, sometimes challenging, you know, just about living together and navigating that. And I do that sort of mindfulness thing, right? It's like, no one can touch me. It's just stuff happening, just sounds being heard. And it's really a way, I mean, it's experienced probably by the other person as a real uh, pushing away or shutting out, right? So, I mean, it's not that there isn't some truth to non-attachment, but what really allows for non-attachment is to see everything. So when I, when my kind of so-called ego is using mindfulness as a strategy to not feel something or to not be touched by life, well, that's not mindfulness, that's aversion, right? That's fear and aversion. And, And there's always qualities that masquerade, you know, our practice. So we have to, we have to be wise. Oh, yeah, spiritual bypassing, it's called. Like with mudita, you know, you may think you have a lot of appreciative joy, you can see what's beautiful, but the near enemy, so-called near enemy, is when we get really whipped up in a, with the exuberance of something. Oh, this is so great. And we've totally disconnected from the world, from the moment, because we're in our own little bubble about how great it is, right? Have you seen, I mean, it's not so easy to catch ourselves, but we can catch other people when they're in this place. And it's like, they're so happy about something going on with me, but they feel a million miles away because they're in their own exuberant response. And they're not actually being real in the moment in terms of the relationship. So we're always interested in these shadows as they creep in. And so just generally with awareness practice, we'll get in ruts, all kinds of ruts, where we feels like we're being mindful, but it 
doesn't feel healing, it doesn't feel enlivening, and that's the sort of you know, information that something's off. And one of the go-to places when your practice feels off is to look at the four Brahma-Viharas, the four divine abodes. So in what way may love not be freely flowing here in my heart and mind, in my body? Because that's generally the good, that will be a very effective corrective. Like, is in some way the enlivening, this is interesting, the enlivening energy of equanimity. That's what I'll talk about next Sunday, which is the fourth Brahma Bihar. Like, is there some way that the enlivening energy, emotion of equanimity isn't naturally flowing here? Or the enlivening energy of compassion, tenderness, brokenheartedness, as an enlivening, uplifting emotion. Compassion is not a heavy emotion. It's Compassion is that enlivening quality when we're able to be close to experience, especially the experience of suffering, right? We feel enlivened that I don't have to build a wall around suffering. So it feels good, even though we're close to suffering, which is not good, of course, somebody else's suffering, our own suffering, we don't want anybody to suffer, but needing to build a wall around it is more suffering. Not having to build a wall around it is enlivening. And so that's just sort of an interesting thing. So then now in terms of mudita, appreciative joy, you know, now that we know, have a little flavor of what it feels to experience a heart that's free of envy, free of jealousy, free of stinginess, free of the idea that I can't be generous because, oh, poor me. You know, I've got a lot of difficulty in my life, so I can't really appreciate anything. Right? That's how we feel. Like, it seems, because there actually is often very real pain and difficulty in our lives, and certainly in the lives of those around us, all the time, then is it the natural conclusion that I have to cut myself off from joy because there's actually very real suffering? See, it seems that way. It seems almost like it would be disrespectful to the very real suffering in the world, in our own hearts and around us, to allow joy to move, to express itself, to blossom in moments in our hearts. And that's something for us to really reflect on. Is that actually true? Do we do anybody any harm? Do we cause some kind of injustice when we allow our heart to be touched by joy, to feel that movement of joy, even though there is injustice, there's suffering, we're not done, nobody's done with anything, right? So we're not imagining that the moments of joy somehow diminish the very real suffering. But suffering doesn't diminish the very real joy. Maybe the world is sort of awe-inspiring enough that it can include both, (laughs) right? Maybe that's how it is, that this world is filled, as they say in the Buddhist tradition, there's kind of a line that's developed, the 10,000 joys and sorrows. 
just like referring to the world as that place of 10,000 joys and sorrows. I mean, 10,000 just means a lot, a lot of joy and sorrow. But not just sorrow and not just joy. And sometimes when we're having a lot of joy, we want to pretend, this is that shadow, right? We want, or that bypass, we want to pretend that, you know, the sorrow isn't really the sorrow. We don't want to know about the sorrow because it seems to be taken away from the joy, the fact that there's very real suffering and injustice, right? And it's the same way when we're really identified with the sorrow, the joy can feel insulting. How dare you come and visit, you know? Because because we assume that when there's suffering and when we're sort of pretending to be compassionate, that compassion is serious, serious business, suffering is serious business. And it's really missing the point that suffering is just the way that it is. Sometimes it's like this. It's neither serious nor not serious. Just like joy is neither serious nor not serious. It's just the way it is sometimes. Beauty is. Right, like uh, in one of the later commentaries, very famous commentaries, written about 800 years after the time of the Buddha, the Vasudhimaga Path of Purification. He says, uh, Buddha um, Buddha Gosa, the author of this text, says something like, "Suffering is, but no sufferer can be found." Right, and we could say the same. Happiness is. Happiness arises but not somebody who owns it or has it. It's just that beautiful, light, radiant experience as it actually is sometimes in our hearts, in our minds, maybe even collectively in a group of people that shared joy that can arise in moments. And we actually want to be really good at noticing moments of joy because it helps us, it gives us immunity and space to understand moments of sorrow. Because what allow, what gets in the way of really being intimate and nimble and free when there's a lot of pain and suffering is somehow mistakenly thinking this is all there is. So the whole heart-mind collapses kind of gets in this dark vortex. And the thing is, it's just not true. But our minds, you know, one of the things we realize as we start paying attention to the mind is it's uh, the mind is absolutely involved in constructing our reality, how we're relating. So when we're focused in on some difficulty in our life, around us, in our hearts, then that obsessive focus sort of creates a feedback mechanism. Because it's really intense when we're focused, then the ego gets identified with the intensity of the idea, I'm doomed, or you're doomed, or this is bad, we're all going to hell. This is terrible, right? The, there's a certain juiciness to the intensity because 
that habit of selfing can really use the drama of the negativity, of the suffering, right? And so there's a a funny way, an unfortunate way where suffering gets hijacked by the needs of the ego. The needs of the ego is to reinforce the idea of separation because the ego depends on that uneasy existential feeling of, oh, poor me, I'm here in this wild world and I don't know what to do. Right? It's, it's like, talk about juicy for the ego, from an egoic point of view. The ego has endless energy to spin about its own opormis. And so, when we're practicing compassion, right, we, it's that sort of normalizing, seeing the enormity, seeing how nobody is exempt, seeing how uh, there may, like we don't put a silver lining. So when we're contributing, when we're showing up, what gives the heart resilience, what makes the heart enliven, is how wonderful it is to not be afraid, how wonderful it is to not be dependent on a positive scenario. Oh, this is going to end well. We'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. You know, we'll, we'll turn the corner around global warming, or we'll turn the corner around how racism operates, or how other sort of forms of injustice continue to get reinforced and operate in our world. We'll turn it around, and once and for all, we'll be perfectly happy together. You know, and we'll have this perfect utopia where everyone is perfect. And that that lie or that hope is its own kind of suffering. It's a prison for the mind. Because then I can't really see things clearly because it might challenge my utopian idea. Right? I can't actually show up to the world that we live in. Because sometimes the world we live in is cycling down the drain. And sometimes it's lifting itself up by the bootstraps. And sometimes it's in this sort of holding zone where we don't know what the heck's happening. A little bit of both, maybe. But clearly, you know, when we look at history, when we look at our own lives, the own our own sort of family lives or bigger community lives, we see these cycles. I mean, it was just so interesting to observe in my own heart around me, you know, just the kind of unseen hope that I lived with. We're getting better. We're moving in the right direction, and then things change. Right, and I was actually on a long retreat, a five-month retreat during 9/11, so I missed all the trauma just people received from watching the news, let alone people who were more intimately involved. And then coming back and just seeing how alive fear was in the country, and just the kinds of choices. I I came off retreat in December, so several months after the fact, and other radical changes that some of us thought could never happen, right? And then we realize, oh, not that, oh, this shouldn't have happened, but, oh, I was deluded thinking that, you know, things are going this way. No, things go like this. And just to understand, I'm not saying maybe they, they go like this, or it's, but in any case, we don't really know how it's going. We don't see all the cycles, right? We don't have enough perspective. And, 
can we really show up in life knowing that we don't know? Like this is also true with what happens at the time of death. It's so easy to want to pretend we have some certainty, whether you're a Buddhist or a Christian or a Muslim or whatever sort of set of ideas that you're just going to hold to with some fixed view. Holding with a fixed view is suffering. Instead, what we're trying to do is just develop this kind of sense of responsibility for the one thing we can take responsibility for, which is how I'm showing up right now. That we can take responsibility. It's not so easy to take responsibility for anything else. Like even those of you who are parents, I was just looking at Rebecca over there, knowing that she has some kids, and you know, it it feels like we should take responsibility for the entire life of our child. But I'm guessing that there's a lot of suffering in that. (laughs) But it is possible to take responsibility for how you're showing up in one moment. right? And if we're showing up in a not-so-skillful way, we can be aware of that. And then things immediately start to change. That would be the honest and wholesome thing to do. Oh, honey, I can't really be here for you right now mommy, daddy, whatever, you know, I'm lost in my own dramas right now. Sorry that I snapped at you, right? And already that's like a really beautiful way, that kind of honesty and transparency is a really beautiful way to show up with your kid, depending on the age, of course. But So that, that we can really do. And this is where mudita, appreciative joy, comes in. Because like I was saying, as a corrective, to just ask ourselves from time to time, like, am I regularly seeing what's beautiful? Because if I'm not, that might be a really useful corrective. Like, then there's something off with my mindfulness. If I'm not in a regular way being touched by beauty, being touched by wholesomeness, being touched by what's good, not in some spectacular sort of manifestation, but just ordinary manifestations. You know, like while you're waiting in line at a food truck and you see a half a dozen people get their meal and that simple moment of like, oh, I get to eat, right? Right, just to pre- instead of like, when am I going to get my food, right? Just to appreciate the people who are getting their food because it really matters what we pay attention to. And why would we we wouldn't consciously choose to miss that ordinary moment of joy. It's the same thing like on those freeway ramps where you're the 10th car back and you're waiting for each light to allow one car at a time to go. Right? We could pay attention to how long it's taken me to get to the front of the line or we could appreciate that this person gets to go. I mean, it sounds silly to say these things, but why do we keep paying attention to some expression of, oh, poor me? What good does that do us or anybody? Right? It just ties our heart into a tighter knot. But it reinforces a juicy sense of, oh, poor me. So that primitive ego, it's not us, that primitive ego. Like uh, we were talking at our sutta study group on first Saturday of the month. So this last Saturday we meet, always the first Saturday of the month, and 
uh, one of the things we were studying the Buddhist teachings on not-self, the sort of impersonal nature. And one way that people have talked about the mind in this impersonal way is like a group of committee members and not like a harmonious committee. (laughs) Maybe some of you have been on a harmonious committee. I think they exist sometimes. But more like the Chicago City Assembly, you know, the City Council in Chicago, which is notorious for intense, divisive politics and power grabbing and you know, sort of dog-eat-dog kind of struggles to be at the top of the heap. Right? And now imagine that that's our mind and there are a lot of different committee members and every once in a while there's an inspired leader that can activate the wholesome qualities of the other committee members and for a few moments the group, the committee, comes into some wholesome sink and they do something good, and it feels good. And then they immediately want to claim it as their own, you know, and they start fighting again. And then we're back, you know, in the dog-eat-dog world. But it's just a nice way, like, because there's something magnetic, there's something healing and pleasant. And pleasantness gets the mind's attention, right? So the other committee members who maybe are more you know, have a lot of not-so-wholesome tendencies. But if you can pay attention, if whatever committee member, whatever habit, like the habit to notice what's wholesome and good, that gets to be, if we make that habit, then that habit gets to be one of the committee members. That's not ourself either. It's just another habit as a contrast to some some of the not-so-skillful habits that tends tend to notice what's not good, who's not doing their share, or something like that. So we create a new habit, a new committee member, this habit of noticing what's wholesome, what's good, what's beautiful. And the thing is, when that habit actually expresses itself and notices something that's wholesome in the moment, like, oh, it's warmer today. right? And then there's something about the pleasantness of that appreciation that gets, oh, what are they doing over there? What's that committee member doing? Maybe I can join them because that feels good. Somehow, because all the committee members, even the really divisive ones and the power-hungry ones, they all want pleasantness. They're just going about it in ways that are counterproductive, but they don't know better. So, you know, when we're really throwing things around, you know, it's that sort of habit of human beings when they're really angry, when they've been oppressed, beaten up, you know, the only thing they can do sometimes, we can do sometimes, is just break things. Even though we may be the person who suffers most by the things I'm breaking. But for some reason, that seems to make sense. Right? And that's like a habit or a, an example of these negative or unwholesome habits, the heart, the heart of the habit is just wanting to feel good, but the mind isn't seeing clearly, so its action to feel good makes things worse. So when there's a a wholesome habit, a wise habit, that can actually illuminate some inner pleasure, some pleasure that has a little stability, noticing something good. Then everybody starts to listen. 
Now you'll get some pushback. Like I'm sure even when we did the chant, some of you were kind of, oh, this seems a little fake or sentimental. right? But it, the more interesting question is, so what? Why not just experiment, see if it actually delivers? Like what are you afraid of? The thing is we think the negativity is true and therefore everything else is a little off or false. But when we realize that the negative attitude is just as false as every other attitude, that all attitudes aren't true, they're just either a skillful or an unskillful means. So whatever attitude we have right now, it's not about it being right, it's just about what's it doing? What's it setting in motion? And is that what we want to set in motion? And if we could just ask that question, okay, this is the attitude. It's neither me nor not me. It's just one of the committee members showing up. Somehow they got to the front of the room, this committee member. They have the gavel for a few moments. They're expressing themselves. What is that doing for the whole scene in the body and mind? And this is that alchemy that I mentioned at the beginning, like just by remembering, this is the whole point of us having this kind of talk and discussion, is remembering that there are other committee members, right? the committee member of being present, the committee member of being kind, the committee member of appreciating what's beautiful, of being tender about what's painful the committee member of forgiveness, the committee member of gratitude, the committee member of patience, the committee member of curiosity, like that sense of wonder. Ah, wow. So this is the present moment. This is what it feels like. This is, these are all the committee members coming and going in my heart and mind right now. Oh, this is what it is to be a human being. Right? There are a lot of committee members we can call on. But we have the habit of calling on, you know, Ms. Grumpy or Mr. You know, whatever, critical mind, judging mind. And we just get stuck in the habits. So the biggest committee member tends to get the gavel over and over and over again. And then if we're lucky, we have a partner or a good friend who says, boy, that's really a habit of your mind. You know, they tease us in just the right way. You know, here you go again. And we see it. Right, we see that that's just a habit. It's not actually me. And that habit as a habit doesn't need to be fed. And there are other committee members that can be called on. And this is the thing we realize that the present moment input, it, isn't, it doesn't seem like much, but it's quite powerful. The way, like this is the Buddhist equivalent to free will. Because when you study Buddhism, it can seem wrongly that there's no free will in what the Buddha said, but that's just not correct. But it's subtle. Free will is how we train the mind to pay attention. That's the intervention, what we pay attention to. Because what's arising right now in this moment for each of us, that we don't have any control over. Because what's arising, the different mood, different intentions or motivations that are arising right now in my heart, they are arising out of everything past. There's nothing really I can do about the dispositions, the biases, the different tendencies. This is one of the things we 
learn when we're really unpacking racism and our cultural conditioning around gender, sex, class, color of skin, we realize that cultural conditioning will express itself as our dispositions, our biases, right now. And either we're going to be, a, we can train ourselves to be a, more and more aware, or we can train ourselves to be more and more unaware, right? But when we train ourselves to be aware, then there's, this is the free will part, there's wisdom. Wisdom is the part of the mind that's there when there's enough presence, present moment awareness, that sees the different conditionings, dispositions from the past showing up in the present moment. That's the definition of wisdom. It sees what shows up in our heart, in our mind, and it can, to whatever degree wisdom is strong, discern which of those biases and disposition and tendencies are going to plant seeds of suffering and which might plant seeds of release and freedom. And then it will ignore, it will feel, but ignore, not act out, what it sees to be unwholesome. And it will allow to bloom any of the wholesome disposition tendencies. It won't, you know, with just that intention, that motivation, that force to do, will just be given permission to do. It won't, nothing will resist it. But if wisdom is suspicious, it will skillfully attempt to suppress, like, okay, honey, I don't think this is helpful. I know what you feel like. I'm not afraid to feel you, but I'm not going to let you have the gavel because it's not going to help. It's just going to cause more suffering because I recognize you. I see you. And that means I also feel you. So that's why it's not repression. Like we're feeling the disposition. We can be intimate with the disposition without acting it out, without repressing it. I can know I'm afraid without acting out my fear. I can be upset with my partner without acting it out fully, right? Like I can say to them, I'm really upset. I don't want to be upset, but I'm really upset. And it hurts, and I don't like the feeling, and I want to scream, but I know that's not going to help. And somehow, hard to believe, I don't think it's your fault. I think it's my own stuff. But I really want to blame you. (laughs) Right? So that's not repression, but it's also not just blindly acting it out, which would just, you know, set something not skillful in motion. So I'll leave it here. Next week we'll talk more about equanimity as one of these expressions of love, but it might be Nice to hear from a few of you. We have about seven minutes. The children aren't here today. They've got their spring break. So, uh, yeah, a couple comments. Yeah, Rebecca, please start us off. You wanna... I'm Becca. Got two kids, five and three. I didn't care what you were saying until about 15 minutes ago <laughs> because I was so identified with this road trip that we're... T- pray for us. 1,200 miles, 18 hours... Oh my God. It's our first one. Mm-hmm. I'm so, I was just noticing, like, God, I'm so animated about this trip in the minivan and the screens and no screens and coloring books. And, I mean, for anybody with an anxiety issue, this is like a gold mine, right? So 
so animated, right? And then all of a sudden it just kind of drops into what you're saying. It's like exactly right. That committee member is so in charge of the situation right now. And her name is mom. Yeah. <laughs> the archetypal mom, you know, who never has enough resources. <laughs> who doesn't want to be my dad. Because those road trips were not fun for us. And so that came up too, which is like, whoa, there's so much energy here about trying to show up in this loving, kind way, but this tightness is there to try to. Yeah. So I'm like, mm, let me just get that mic and then be like, what do I do, Mark? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, no pressure. You've probably never done 1,200 miles with a five and a three year old, but I know you got an answer. <laughs> Right, right there on the dashboard, just like, I don't want to be like Dad. <laughs> so you can't miss it. <laughs> because you can't figure it out ahead of time, but that intention sounds really deep. Yeah, but that's just Mom again. You know. But, but that intention is golden. Like what you just expressed to all of us, Becca, that's powerful. Like that desire not to want to plant seeds of suffering, it, doesn't, it isn't like an answer. But it's, a, it will, it's an enlivening force to pay attention. So part of paying attention means we're going to see when dad is, does have the gavel, you know, in the car, in the minivan. And then we'll, once again, we'll learn a little bit more deeply why we didn't want dad to have the gavel to begin with. Because we might need to see that a few times on this road trip, you know, a little bit more, oh yeah, this is why dad shouldn't have the gavel. You know, he just... He's not the right person to have the gavel. His intention is right, his underlying intention, like not to have anybody get hurt. But, but he just doesn't understand with enough breadth and depth how to do that. Because he's acting out the condition from his dad or from somebody. Yeah, so not to repeat the sins of the past. That's a noble intention and it feels insufficient but it's really, it inspires awareness, which is the only thing that's going to save us. But that exposure is hard, right? But any fixed idea is not going to do it. Think about how many parents, mostly mothers probably, through the generations have had the, the Bible, you know, whether it was Spock in the 60s, was it? Benjamin Spock's book. And so many of them were off. You know, like today we'd go, oh my God, they were saying this, they were saying that. Think about like mostly male-dominated, you know, obstetricians in the 50s and some of the things they thought about childbirth. And so we just, we come from this lineage of real ignorance. You know, we lost sort of the cumulative uh, intelligence of people who kind of, pass the wisdom on in a very natural way, one generation to another. And we're in this sort of weird place where we wanted to systematize everything and objectify everything. And we really lost our way for a while. And uh, so it's not that indigenous people were perfectly happy, clearly not. It's just it, we're really kind of in this transition where we're learning the best of both. And it really comes from intimacy, both the sort of Western scientific intimacy, there's a lot of value, but also that sort of generational intimacy of cause and effect, what works, what's helped, you know, and not repeating the mistakes.
So anyway, give us a... <laughs> and let us know how it goes. So Shannon and then... Yeah, thanks for this. Um, so many insights. Uh, I have a probably... You're going to be like, what does that have to do with the talk um, question? Sorry. Um, but um, in the beginning, when we said the chant, I have this question. I just I have an idea of what the answer is, but um, I think it's about attachment. Um, but I'm wondering when we say there's a lot of things in Buddhism and that tradition, when we say, may this go on forever, may this never cease. But then that seems to be antithetical to the the whole understanding of the way it is right and so how do you reconcile that i mean i know that so much of it is aspirational right but how i i'm not i feel like i'm not clearly understanding the relationship between the aspirational energy that comes from saying those things and doing those practices and then sort of the energy that comes from non-delusion yeah no no it's a it's a really important question shannon and it, it is both what you said about the difference between the means and the goal, the aspirational piece. But in Buddhism, there's a real synergy, a real connection between the means, the practice, and the aspiration, the goal. And, and that gives the practice a lot of integrity. So even though what you said, like, yeah, we understand that the aspiration has to be more lofty, but we want to make that loftiness experiential here and now. And so it really has to do with understanding the experience of love. Because when we're in that place of love, and I'm talking about this now as a spiritual emotion, a spiritual attitude, spiritual experience, where the heart is really in a deep way trusting the heart's capacity to include to sort of relax, not in an idealistic way, but really letting it all in, letting it all move, really seeing that I don't have to be defended. I don't need any defense. But we're not in any kind of denial about the reality of the world, the reality of our own conditioning. There's a boundless quality in that. So when the phrase, as imperfect as language is, when it really points to that lofty, aspirational, everything's fine, we don't want to presume that it's later when we're perfect and we get to heaven, then everything's going to be boundless. It's really pointing to something that's here and now. And so we're encouraged to notice, like, again, something very ordinary where we have a, a simple moment of intimacy with one of our loved ones. And we really let it in. And we don't, we're not thinking that the dishes need to be done. We're just feeling that warmth and intimacy and relaxation that comes at times. And then, th this is the important piece, then we go from that sense of relaxation arising because my conditions are really nice to just looking, now the attention is only on the absence of defensiveness, the absence of armor, the absence of fear and aversion. Not why there's no fear, but on the fearlessness. The, because then we're really, in that moment, realizing the mind that is free, even though the world isn't perfect. Because 
we can put down defense and control and fear without the world being perfect. And we can pick it back up. So this is the thing we want to learn. What actually allows us to like speak truth to power is knowing that we can put down responsibility. What actually allows someone to be a good parent is when they learn how to put it down for a moment. Then you feel refreshed when you pick it back up. But if that one committee member, mom, is always got the gavel, then you never get the relaxation, the spiritual relaxation of no responsibility. And we know this intuitively because we tell our friends who are in this, you know, I'm taking you out, we'll get a babysitter, and you're going to forget for four hours that you're a mom, right? But we want to do it more regularly, like even in the moment, like you pick it up, you're there, engaged, and then you drop it for a moment. You disappear, and you pick it back up. Your kid might even say, because they're intuitive, where did you just go? (laughs) But they're wondering, because I want to go. I'm tired of being a kid all the time. I want to drop that, too. You know, always listening to adults. (laughs) Yeah, Haya, you get the last word, and then we'll have to end. I think that listening to your questions gives me joy because I get to listen and I get to hear and I get to learn from each one of you. So I just was thinking about that and and feeling, oh, I wish some of the committee members that had to leave had a chance too because it's so important what we learn from each other. Yeah, that's a nice expansive feeling with that, that last sharing there. So let's just take a few seconds, let go of the words and enjoy just a few seconds of silence. Thanks, everyone. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.